0: Hello and welcome to FinSight Global Financial Institutions Industry Podcast. My name is Pat McDonald, and I'm a tax partner at Baker McKenzie's Chicago office. I regularly advise US clients, non US institutional and sovereign wealth clients on tax issues relating to private equity, infrastructure funds, and real estate funds. Our episode today is part of the ongoing sovereign series World in Motion, and the first of two episodes that takes a close look at sovereign wealth funds, our current observations of our sovereign clients' approach to tax governance and structuring. In this first episode, we will be taking a closer look at the investment activities of sovereign players in the post-global financial crisis and pandemic environments, and their areas of tax focus in M&A scenarios, including in making U.S. investments. Joining me today is an esteemed panel of speakers from various Baker McKenzie offices. First, we have Diogo Duarte de Oliveira, managing partner of Baker Lux's tax team, who advises private and institutional investors on fundraising, management incentive strategies, and transaction structuring. Next, Guillaume Le Camus, a partner in Baker Paris's tax group. Guillaume's practice focuses on international tax, M&A, and private equity transactions. Next, James Burdett, a corporate partner in Baker's London office. He has extensive experience acting on fund transactions in the private equity, real estate, and renewable energy sectors. And last, but certainly not the least, Met Leg, a partner in our London office who advises on investment structuring for a broad client base, including private equity, sovereign wealth funds, and family offices. Well, with that, let's kick off with a discussion about the sovereign investor profile. I'm gonna turn it over to James first. James, what role are you seeing sovereign investors playing now in the post-global financial crisis and COVID-19 markets?
1: Well, Pat, uh, they're playing an increasingly important role, I think it's fair to say. Uh, This was the case before the pandemic, but has only been accelerated by the disruption of the the past couple of years. Uh, Sovereigns, like their private sector counterparts, the private equity, real estate, and infrastructure fund managers, have been an important source of capital for these sectors. And there's been a queue of capital waiting to invest in key growth sectors, such as healthcare, digital infrastructure, logistics, and latterly, broader real estate sectors, such as hotels and leisure where there has been a material repricing as a result of pan- pandemic headwinds. And the absolute numbers are really quite significant. As at 2020, sovereign investors had an estimated six to seven trillion in assets under management. That's really quite staggering if you think about it. As permanent capital investors, they generally have long-term investment horizons and are often seeking strategic investment opportunities in real estate, infrastructure, private equity, and private debt and other alternative assets. This is particularly the case given their public debt investments have generally not delivered the returns they may have hoped for in the last few years, given the uh, extremely low interest rate environment. Uh, From a public policy perspective, there are important investor uh, considerations for this investor group, given generally governments' desire to, quote, build back better following the global pandemic. This is particularly the case as countries are seeking capital for energy transition projects, digital infrastructure, and other high-growth future sectors. This is also fed into an increasing emphasis on environmentally and socially responsible investment. And we've seen several sovereign wealth funds leading the way on this. For example, GIC and the Norwegian Future Generations Fund in particular, who now use a ESG yardstick uh, to measure all of their investments, whether or not in the uh, classic uh, environmentally uh, uh, focused sectors. So that's that's my brief take on the uh, on the market at the moment. There's a lot more to say, but I'm going to hand back to you, Pat.
0: Well, thank you very much, James. That is extremely interesting. I'm going to turn it over to Matt now. Matt, you head up our alternative investments tax subgroup in London. In your day-to-day practice, what kinds of sovereign players are, do you typically advise?
2: Yes, thank you, Pat. Um, so we, we advise a, a really a very broad range of uh, different clients who I would I think would fall within the sovereign wealth fund category. Uh, at the one end, you've got, um, I would call institutional-type sovereign wealth funds, so um, h- highly uh, sophisticated, organized structures, international offices that function, function in a similar way to, say, large multinational um, corporates or asset management houses and on the other hand we've got our our smaller scale um, clients that function more in a way that's more akin to for example family offices Um, and and for example that might be um, where a ruling family of a a middle eastern nation um, is in control of the state funds and deploying state funds Uh, I think this podcast will focus more on the former category, uh, that more institutional side of the sovereign wealth fund spectrum uh, and also public pension funds that we uh, act for, who I think share many characteristics that are similar to um, those institutional sovereign wealth fund players.
0: Thank you very much, Matt. Yes, it's it's, uh, very clear and, uh, and very interesting in terms of the various sovereign players across the world today. And across various jurisdictions, uh, James, I'm going to turn it back over to you. What are some of the more recent sovereign transactions that our London office has been involved in?
1: it's It's a huge universe, Pat, and um, hard to choose too. But just to reflect on what Matt has said, uh, they've covered the whole spectrum in terms of the different uh, types of sovereigns and the size of transactions. Um, the, the two I'd focus on is, uh, firstly, a, uh, a transaction we pursued for a uh, Asian-based sovereign, which was uh, acquiring a 40% direct stake in a European industrial manufacturing company. And that, I think, was an example of, uh, if you like, the sophisticated end of the sovereign spectrum where you've got clients who've got significant deal teams, significant in-house Uh, Legal and tax capabilities, and also uh, a a strong asset management team to look after the investment once it's been made. Um, The other example I'd give is where we're actually acting for the asset manager who is establishing a a bespoke separate managed account for another Asian sovereign to invest around one and a half billion US dollars across global real estate. So this managed account is it's set up by way of a double parallel limited partnership structure. Um, and there are a host of structuring and tax issues regarding the structure itself, but also the making of those investments. And in particular, I would add in relation to US tax. And I know, Pat, you'll be coming on to talk about some of those, uh, those issues a little later. So that's uh, my two pennies worth, Pat, and uh, back to you.
0: Thank you very much, James. So Guillaume, I'm going to turn it over to you. Can you give us an overview of the most common sovereign transactional scenarios and structures? And also, does the chosen structure typically depend on asset class?
3: Thanks, Pat. Um, There is a large variety of transaction scenario for the funds, uh, depending on both the profile of the investors and the nature of the assets. So on the profile of the investors typically small scale organization with limited resources would favor fund investment uh, relying on a strong asset management team and then on the other side you have larger sovereign investors that would not hesitate to make big ticket direct investment i mean that's exactly the example that James was referring to the, the investment scenario would also very much depend on the on the on the asset class. Uh, for example, in real estate, trophy assets are often directly invested by sovereigns. And maybe one interesting scenario we we, we have seen at several occasions recently is co-investment with large corporates. Uh, so that would be typically the situation where a, a, a corporation would segregate a specific class of assets in an SPV to be co-invested by a sovereign. So what we have seen recently as as an example in in the retail industry, retailers have opened up some of their logistic assets, the the new big mega warehouses to sovereign uh, investors to get some fresh uh, financing while keeping the uh, management and control of the assets at the same time.
0: Thank you, Guillaume. It certainly sounds like sovereign players are adopting various different structures in terms of their investments worldwide. Matt, are, are you seeing co-investment and direct investments then becoming more and more in com- common in your day-to-day practice?
2: Yes, absolutely. Yes, it's um, it's really interesting actually. Um, over the last few years, to see how much more active sovereign wealth funds are in um, in the deals that we're that we're working on, um, so with the direct investments, uh, particularly into trophy real estate assets, as Guillaume mentioned, um, extremely hands-on, extremely sophisticated in-house tax teams that we work very closely with um, on the on the transaction, and, and then uh, and then on further work throughout the life cycle of the investment. Um, and then in the co-investment space, um, it's also I, I think I've also noticed that. They're much more um they're much more hands-on with the with the sponsors that they're working with. So they'll often be sort of the anchor investor um, in a sponsors fund. And whereas in the past, perhaps they might have taken a more passive role in that investment, I think these days we're seeing uh, and the sponsors are seeing much more active involvement from the sovereign wealth funds, which just reflects really on um, the level of uh, increased level of sophistication, I think, within the funds. Um, and then wanting to understand the, you know, the underlying tax risks involved with their investments, and to make sure they are well managed. So I think we've seen a real, um, you know, it's been a, it's been a bit of a shift um, away from that passive investor role that you might have seen in, in the past.
0: Matt, thank you very much for that. Well, we just talked about investor profiles vis-a-vis sovereign funds. Let's shift gears a little bit and talk a little bit about tax functions at the sovereign level. Diogo, I'm going to turn it over to you. What are you seeing in terms of what the tax functions of sovereigns typically look like?
4: Thank you, Pat. Well, I I have to say I, I agree with what Matt just said. Uh, certainly as a result of a, a new tax uh, environment, we see larger and more sophisticated in-house tax teams specializing in the transactional tax aspects, but more and more as well on the tax compliance aspects. We see that the tax teams um, uh, of Sovereign Wealth Funds um, in-house um, are driven by two main objectives in the current context. One is the traditional function, uh, still important obviously to mitigate unnecessary uh, tax leakages. But uh, also, uh, two, is to ensure seamless tax compliance and tax risks uh, mitigation in light of uh, a significant amount of new tax legislation that came into force over the past years. We think about BEPS, ATAD1, ATAD2, Tax 6 possibly ATAD3 uh, to come on, on shell uh, companies. So there, there is a, a shift on the functions and the real Need uh, to to respond and, and to do so. So not only uh, the object the objective is mitigating tax leakages, ensuring uh, a good returns to deal teams, but navigate the reputational aspects and the public opinion perception and expectations. Our work at Baker is is to help. Uh, tax teams and deal teams taking the right decisions in terms of identifying and evaluating these technical opportunities, the technical risks and the reputational risks collaborating across different practices, different jurisdictions uh, and in end with um, with the deal and tax teams uh, of of these sovereign wealth funds. Um, back to you, uh, Pat.
0: Diogo, thank you very much for that. Uh, If I may add a a bit from a U.S. tax perspective and what we are seeing in terms of tax functions at our sovereign wealth clients, I have to say that some of them do have internal tax teams. Others do not, but work very heavily with law firms and accounting firms. And one common thread amongst all of them is that our sovereign clients are extremely sophisticated uh, in the tax area. Uh, mitigation or minimization of tax leakage, and certainly in the US is a key goal. And that's certainly something that every one of our sovereign clients uh, insist on, and they are well-versed in this area. And they, like I said, they work very closely um, with law firms such as Baker McKenzie. They also work closely with the big four. And in turn, that means we work closely with the big four for the benefit of our sovereign clients. So with that, I'm going to turn it back to James. And James, what are you typically seeing sovereigns fuss about nowadays in a transactional scenario? So, for example, are there particular points of sensitivity that are specific to the investor profile?
1: Well, Pat, um, given that this is a a, a session focused on tax, um, I think I'm gonna kick off with. That very topic, and as you said, I mean, tax is absolutely key uh, for sovereigns. Um, you know, p- partly partly because they uh, want to avail themselves of their sovereign immune status in in the many jurisdictions that offer that. Um, but also, I think they want to be good good citizens, and and they want to be seen to be doing the right thing. So, uh, you know, it, it is a rare. It's extremely rare. In fact, I can't think of a, a recent example where a sovereign has wanted to engage in aggressive tax structuring. Quite, quite the opposite. They are um, they are very much focused on sticking by the rules. But but you know where those rules uh, allow them to um, mitigate uh, tax leakage, of course they'll they'll avail themselves of that. But but as I'm sure we'll come on to discuss. Um, yeah, you know, aggressive tax structuring is something sovereigns will generally want to stay well clear of. And that may well you know, affect the choice of, of uh, managers with whom they partner. Uh, I think the other leading issue on sovereigns, and it, it's really sort of b- born out of the same theme on reputation, is the focus on, on um, reputation generally, in the, if you like, in the non-tax sphere. So we've seen sovereigns becoming very focused on uh, anti-bribery and corruption and uh, wanting to write into their uh, agreements with managers with whom they uh, co-invest. So really quite um, strict rules and and protocols around around the reputation of the manager and and, uh, giving the sovereign, if you like, the ability to pull the ripcord if there is reputational damage emanating from the manager that might adversely affect the sovereign and i think this comes back to the sovereigns wanting to be seen to be and indeed being a reliable partner in the investment environment because they have you know literally trillions of dollars to deploy and they are you know however self sufficient some of them may be they're highly reliant on financial counterparties and asset managers to be able to deploy that capital.
0: Thank you very much, James, for that. Um, so we're going to shift gears a little bit uh, for the remaining time of this first episode. And is, and we're going to talk a little bit about, and following on what James just said, about uh, tax issues for sovereign investors. And at least from, from my perspective in the United States, uh, I totally agree with James that Uh, Tax conservative positions from a tax perspective are the norm amongst all of our sovereign wealth investors. And in the United States, the one key goal, tax goal, for every one of our sovereign clients is to preserve a special U.S. tax exemption under Section 892 of our U.S. tax code. And it's an exemption on certain types of U.S. income, including interest, dividends, and gains. And um, and so every one of our sovereign clients uh, have basically a strong preference, and in, in fact, demands uh, to be able to obtain the Section 892 exemption in every single investment that they go into. So this requires then um, very specific negotiations, with fund managers and general partners. And the Section 892 exemption is definitely top of mind from a U.S. tax perspective whenever we uh, advise sovereign clients in fund transactions. Sovereign clients are definitely gaining much more power, especially negotiating power in both primary transactions as well as secondary transactions with a key goal, of course, to preserve this 892 uh, exemption. And the good news is that fund managers and general partners, in our experience, all are very well educated in this area, and they are attuned to this particular U.S. tax sensitivity of sovereign clients. And therefore, they typically will provide assurances and comfort levels, whether it's in a side letter negotiations or right in the contract itself in the limited partnership uh, agreements themselves. And so uh, the, the minimization of tax, going back to what James said earlier and taking a con- very conservative position is something that we are continuing to see in the United States. I suspect we will always be uh, see this, this position by sovereigns because the exemption is a very nice exemption uh, for our sovereign clients. And we don't expect them anytime soon to, to uh, basically pivot from that position. Uh, My final word on on this point in the tax space uh, in the United States is that there are going to be U.S. tax changes uh, to be passed by the Biden administration, probably in the not too distant future. Um, The one that is Uh, that everyone has been talking about that is expected, is an increase in the U.S. federal corporate income tax rate from the current rate of 21% to as high as 28%, although we think it'll probably land anywhere from 25, 26% to 28%. What is this impact on sovereigns? Well, nothing from an 892 exemption perspective, but what what it does mean is that when sovereigns do invest in funds or they Engage in secondary transactions where there are corporations in the structure, the higher tax rate for corporations going forward, or the anticipated higher income tax rate for corporations going forward, does mean that it could have a a potential negative impact on the ultimate returns to our sovereign clients because of the tax leakage at the corporation level. So it'll be interesting to see how that impacts negotiations and our negotiating power uh, with respect to our sovereigns on a go forward basis, but that's something still to be seen. So with that, this has been an overview of some of the MA work that we are doing at Baker McKenzie on behalf of sovereign wealth funds. And we thank you so much for sharing your experience around the space. Thank you also very much to our listeners. We hope you found this in- episode very interesting and informative. For our next episode, we will take a closer look at how tax transparency measures in Europe are affecting sovereign investors' activities there. You can also check out our ongoing sovereign series, Worlds in Motion, where we map the post-pandemic landscape for sovereigns globally. My name is Pat McDonald, and thank you again for listening. We hope you can join us for the next episode of Finsight. Goodbye.